Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. All right. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing fabulous. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Yes, we took a bit of a hiatus. We wanted to catch our breath after Worlds and kind of just let the world settle down and uh, then start putting our sights on what we have coming up here in the future. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things uh, that happened during our little hiatus was um, uh, this new podcast is starting up called City Folk. They approached me and said they're doing an episode on Brad Keller and they wanted to use some of our audio in their podcast. And so... Uh, I just wanted to call that out because it's actually a really fun episode. It starts off describing what is Freestyle Frisbee, and they use some of our audio from the live stream of FPA Worlds. And uh, when I heard it, I got the chills. So I think people out there who are fans of our podcast will also be fans of at least this episode, if not the whole podcast. So uh, I encourage you guys to go out and give it a listen. Yes, we'll definitely include a link to that podcast in the show notes. And uh, with that, why don't we just jump into today's episode? We are going to continue our conversation with Patrick Chartrand, and we're going to dive into the world of doing demos. So enjoy. Like my favorite demo was just was just a really, really good demo. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about that. And you know, there's nothing funny about it, but it's just, a, it was a great demo. What happened was, uh, Brian and I were called to do a, uh, demo, I guess it was either 1987 or 1991. I can't remember which one, but we actually had a routine and those were the last two years that Brian and I played together. So I know it had to be 87 or 91. We were called to do a demo at a Harlem Globetrotters halftime. We go to Cops Coliseum. This is just outside of Toronto. There's seating for 15,000, and there are literally thousands of people at this game. The Globetrotters aren't playing well at all, so the fans are ready for some entertainment. So we come out there at halftime, we're dressed in our surfing clothes, we're playing the surf music, and what we do is we come out and we just start playing throw and catch with one disc. And we're doing everything, right? You know, all the throws, all the catches. And then we get two discs going. So we get the two discs going, and the crowd's like, what the hell's going on? People can play frisbee with two discs at the same time? So we got the two discs going. We've got a third disc, and Brian's making a big show of trying to get to it. Now, we've done this dozens of times. We know we can do the three discs. He's making a big show of trying to get to it. So finally, he gets the third disc in the air. So now we got three discs in the air, the two of us at the same time, and the crowd is going nuts. Thousands of people cheering. It was like, wow, this is pretty good. So the music stops. They think it's over. Well, it's not over. We haven't done our freestyle yet. So along comes Tears for Fears, and we got a routine that we have to this song. To this point, we haven't delayed it. We haven't body rolled it. We haven't done anything. And we just go right into our routine. We got hoops. We got kicks. We got brushes. We got guidances. The crowd just went nuts. Absolutely nuts. We were on fire. So we finish. We got thousands of people cheering us on. We're like, wow, this is pretty cool, right? And we're going off the floor, and the Harlem Globetrotters are all lined up, and they, each one of them gave us a high five as we went off the floor, right? We felt like we were rock stars, you know? It was, it was a pretty good feeling. That's wow. awesome. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. That was, that was a lot of fun, that's for sure. Yeah, you impressed the Globetrotters. 
<laughs> yeah, I've done a few demos in those arena uh, settings, and it is it's pretty heady. You know, I've done a couple back when the Sonics used to still be here in Seattle. Right. Uh, Doug Simon, Dougie Fresh, and I did a couple demos, and it's pretty wild. You know, you like go out there, and it's a different environment. You can just feel the energy of all those people. You know, and it was pretty cool to have all those people cheering. I do remember. Cool. It's pretty cool, and we, you know, we had all kinds of other crazy things happen at shows and. I had a show where we used to do a gag. We we did lots of gags in the show because they're entertaining for people. So we'd have this gag where you know, it would be either me and Gary or, or myself and Brian. And Ken would be on the mic and he'd be going, you know, these two guys have been having a hard time with each other today. And really kind of building up the tension we're having. You know, Brian would be kind of looking at me and, and Ken would be going, hey, Brian, what are you doing? Like, will you calm down? And Brian would have a disc in his hand. And he'd whip the disc at my head. Well, I would duck. The disc is on an elastic. It would go over my head, almost hit a person in the crowd, then come back and he'd catch it, right? So it was just a little stupid gag, but the fans loved it, you know? That's cool. (laughs) Right. But one day the damn elastic broke. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the fan actually ate the disc. (laughs) (laughs) Were they hurt? No, it was, was, you know, by that point, like, it, it had pulled the resistance enough just to break the elastic and they just kind of just touch the person, you know. But it's just kind of one of those funny That's hilarious. Do you ever have any moments at demos where you just kind of thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe that we're in this situation or you got out of a situation that was a little awkward or well, you know, there's always, you know, you're in a demo and it's kind of one of these, you know, picnics that that some company has and you go there and it's, you know, 35 mile an hour winds. It's like, how the hell are we going to manage this? And you, you somehow manage, you know, but you really have to dig deep and figure out, okay, we got to change your format here. And you're not doing your routine. That's not going to happen. So you just kind of hold on for dear life and, and try your best, right? Yeah, there's, you know, some funny things happen along the way. I mean, it's just kind of what happens in life, right? I mean, you know, freestyle is not a very precise sport. I mean, it, it's very precise. But to execute in the best of conditions is hard, let alone when you're, you know, in tricky conditions, right? Now, there, there was another story I'd like to tell you about. I know this goes back to, I think, about, uh, it was 85 or 86. We had gone down to Buffalo for a tournament. We'd been down there for three days. I think it was a Buffalo Wing Team, team tournament. They used to hold the tournament down there every year. So we're coming back, and we're in uh, this fellow's car, Alex Hughes. He lives in Texas now. Um, really good guy. And uh, we're in his beat-up car coming back. Myself, Ken, Alex, and uh, Bob Blakely, who was... Uh, organizing Frisbee in Canada at the time. We get to the border, and the fellow says to Alex, do you have anything to declare? And Alex says, nope. And I'm thinking, yes. So we get pulled over. So we have to go to the search area there, and the fellow, this is 11.30 in the evening, fellow shines the spotlight in the back of the car and doesn't see anything. So then he reaches under the passenger seat, and what's he find? A can of beer. And as he's pulling that beer from under the passenger seat, it catches a spring. And it pull, he pulls it out, and now he's being sprayed by beer in the face, customs officer. First thing he says to us is, you realize I can impound your car for this. At which point in time, I get that really bad feeling in my stomach, thinking, oh, this is not good. So that's that. He opens the trunk. He goes into my suitcase first, or my bag. We didn't have suitcases. And what's he find? You've got these envelopes there. Ken and I had one freestyle. So there's an envelope with money. It says first place freestyle. There's some trophies there. I had some other envelopes because I think I came fifth place overall and Ken, Ken came second. So he's like, what's this? 
And I'm like, well, we were at a tournament. And then I got a Walgreens bag with all the stuff in it. And he says, well, what's this? And I said, well, I want to declare my stuff. He says, too late. <laughs> oh. so, you know, so I was like, oh, God, this isn't going well. So then he goes into Ken's bag. And Ken's got this money and these, these trophies and pretty well the same dialogue. And then he starts to go through the other guy's bags. And at this point in time, Ken and I just kind of looked at each other. We didn't say anything, but the look was, are we going to try to play our way out of this? So him and I, by this point, it's 12 o'clock midnight. We're under the lights at the U.S.-Canada border. Him and I just started jamming. So we just started jamming. And about three or four minutes later, nothing was going on there. All the border guards are watching us jam and they're cheering us on. So we finish. We finish. And the guy calls us over. And he says, I'm going to let you guys go home. On one condition. I'm like, okay, what's the condition? He goes, you two guys, pointing at Ken and I, need to autograph some discs for us. <laughs> oh, man. All right. <laughs> so we autographed these guys' discs because we had, we were sponsored by Schooner Beer at the time. It's a product of Labatt. So we always had discs with us because we always were giving them away everywhere we went, right? So we had some Schooner discs. We just signed them up. I never signed so many uh, discs so quickly in my life. We gave these border guys the discs, and, man, we got the hell out of Dodge, right? I love it. Another Frisbee story of Frisbee keeps me out of jail. Well, you know, at that point, they'd never seen, like, there was no YouTube. There was no internet. I mean, we're talking 1985, right? So nobody could even understand what the hell they were seeing. And then they saw us doing this. And I guess they figured, okay, these kids seem like they're okay. Frisbees have really kind of a magical energy. You know, there's just something about them. Whenever I go traveling anywhere, if I'm like at a bus stop or I'm somewhere and I can just kind of pull it out and I'll just toss it at somebody and they just automatically will reach out and grab it and changes your relationship immediately. Well, you think about how it turns you on and, you know, we're all in, we're in deep. Well, there's a whole pile of other people out there. I would say millions of other people that aren't in so deep, but they're, they enjoy playing. It's a connector. It really is. I mean, you don't throw it to yourself. You throw it to somebody else, right? So, okay, so you were doing demos for a long time. Was that your primary source of income? Uh, for a number of years, yes. Okay. So what I would do is I would work a year, take a year off, work a year, take a year off, and I did that for a number of years. Even the years when I was working, I was still doing demos on the weekends and whatnot, but on the years that I had time off, I was doing demos wherever I could, whenever I could. You know, we were kind of going all over the place wow. with it, and we had different... Uh, Sponsors, as I mentioned, we were sponsored by Labatt's the one year or two years, and that was amazing. I mean, they, they paid us a lot of money, and we traveled all over the place promoting their product. One of the funny things about that whole thing was um, we would show up, and there was um, a third party booking all the, all the shows for us. So all we did was at the beginning of the week, we'd receive a list, and it'd say, you know, this week you're going to Grand Bend, you're going to Wasega Beach, you're going to the Bombay Beach Club. You know, whatever it is. And um, we would just show up these places. But before we showed up there, we would go to the Labatt's outlet, get 10 cases of beer, show up at the place at noon, give them the beer for free. Then we would come back later in the day, we'd do our show, and then we'd buy the beer back. We had a $1,000 bar tab every night. So that was pretty amazing. So wow. you do the show, and you're the freaky guys, and then we, you know, after the show, we're in the bar, and we're giving people discs, we're buying them beers, and that was a lot of fun. Wow. You guys must have been hugely that, popular because you're basically buying beers for everybody at the bar. All I can say is I'm surprised my girlfriend and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, actually stick with me. Not that we ever did anything inappropriate, but 
I mean, when you're in a bar with a thousand dollar bar tab, people want to get to know you, right? Yeah. Hey, just want to give a shout out to Skippy Jammer for his donation to Frisbee Guru. It's nice to know that folks value what we're doing and want to be a part of it. If you value what we do too, feel free to go to our website and donate. Now back to the show. It's, it's crazy, you know, because Bud Light, you know, they kind of had that relationship as well. It's like, you know, we're going to hand out the product as much as we can. Um, and curious about how all those, all that exposure to discs, you're giving away discs. And did you ever feel like you were, that you turned people on, that you actually were turning people into jammers? Or this is just something in my own mind. I just feel like, God, there was so much energy put out there. And yet we never really produced a big freestyle scene. It just never grew. Why do you, why do you think that happened? Why, why do you think that is? I, I don't know. I mean, personally, I think freestyle is so damn hard to get good at. Only the select few are willing to make the commitment to get there. But I think what we did was we got a lot of people who were having fun, who got free Frisbees, who went off and had a good time with those. And they prob- they're probably still out there today, for all I know, you know. And then, you know, they, you know, Labatt's got to put their product name on there, and they probably sold a hell of a lot of beer as a result of it, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, the whole freestyle thing, I mean, you think about how hard it is to get good. A lot of people don't want to do that. But it's funny. I was talking, I remember we were talking with Bill Wright about just the amount of people through all the demos everybody's done and all the exposure and just to not have, you know, like to maybe get one or two new people a year. That just, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm just like, there's got to be more than just two people in the whole world that are like us every year. Well, there might be access points also too, right, Randy? Because, you know, how many access points are there really? You know, in Toronto, there's me and the boys. But, I mean, other than that, I'm not sure what other access points there are in Canada right now. I know Glenn Whitlock's out on the West Coast with ice hockey, so to speak. You know, in Canada, we probably have 25,000 ice hockey rinks. Well, people have access to it. But, you know, with with freestyle, if you've only got a couple of access points, you're not going to bring in that many people, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I would think for, you know, most, if you think about the jam spots around the world, pretty concentrated access points right they are yeah i never thought about it as an access point that's a really good way to phrase it because you know, I always think about oh you give a person a frisbee and then they get that intense exposure and then they're they don't have anywhere to go expand on there's no access points for them well, to jump in into in the willingness to mentor also i mean you know we have a huge mentorship thing going on in toronto right now but then again you know i mean the better players have to be willing to mentor the newer players of people that are interested and, you know, be able to take in a little bit of time out from your jam when someone's coming by and saying, Hey, you know, can you help me with this? Or, you know, what is this? Right. So I think, I think mentorship's a, a huge piece of it, to be honest with you. Well, yeah. Mentorship <laughs> is part of the access point. I think, I mean, just cause you have yeah, well, players around doesn't mean that, yeah. that you're at, you have access to them. Well, and you know, the willingness, like for example, uh, you guys know Brett, you've seen Brett around. He's uh-huh. been playing for three and a half years. Damn good player for three and a half years in. Yes. Um, but you know what? I mean, Brian and I make conscious efforts to connect with him and to show him stuff because he's so willing and, you know, he really wants to, he's jonesing for it. So he really wants to go. So why wouldn't you take a half an hour out of your four hour jam that you're having with the guy to show him some stuff? I mean, you know, that's how you, you grow people and that's how you grow the sport. Last week, I showed uh, Brett five catches. And the reason why I showed them to him is they're all clock catches. And he's a clock player. And I realized, hey, I've got a whole pile of clock catches I can show him. 
right? So I just showed them to him. It took me half an hour to show them to him. And I'm sure he's working on them right now. But the thing is, is I really didn't have to do that. And I'm sure he would have figured those catches out. But for me to take a half hour and show him that is nothing. And it's going to help him develop his game. I think there are a lot of players that are willing to do that out there now. Things have changed. Things were really competitive back in the 80s when, when I was doing the tournament scene. And it seems now that there's, there's more of a um, willingness to share and to kind of help the, the newer or the lesser players. So I wasn't around in the early days, but the, all the stories that I hear are about really intense competition and about people being afraid their moves would be stolen and, and stuff like that. Whereas today, it doesn't really feel like that. It feels like, like we have this term, the jamily. It really feels like yeah. we're all trying to help each other uh, and just being friends with each other. You know, it's, it's just as much about community and friendship as it is about mentoring each other in the sport. Well, it's interesting, Jake. Uh, I haven't been to a tournament, any tournament, for I think 26 years. And then I went to the Worlds in New York. And the difference that I noticed just in the way players supported and interacted with each other. And then the term jamly was introduced to me and it was like, yeah, I get it. Like, this is the jamly in motion here. I can see it as being a real thing. And, you know, like I've, I was playing, Craig Simon and I were jamming. And then I think you showed up, and then Lisa showed up, and then Freddie showed up, and I'm like, wow, all these great players that just showed up on my jam. Like, what the hell is going on, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it felt pretty good. Yeah. Everybody plays yeah. with everybody. Yeah, it's hard to... Kirkland a long time ago told me that there was an A jam and a B jam, but I don't see that as clearly these days as I used to see it back when he was telling me that. It's nice. It's nice to. It's really nice to see, that's for sure. Definitely. So yeah. how do we get well, more access points? That's the next question. That's a good question. You know, it's uh, one of my problems with the sport is we're trying to grow the sport and we want the sport, you know, people are changing the judging system. They're trying to do stuff to advance the sport. However, it'd be nice if there's an infusion of money into the sport that would allow for some more infrastructure stuff to happen. And, you know, I'm not close enough. Maybe there is, but uh, I'm just thinking if, if, Know, somehow money got in, in kind of injected into the sport that allowed people to coordinate some activities around infrastructure to you know support newer players and, and connect newer players and more experienced players and, and whatnot, I don't know, clinics or whatever it would be, right? It's interesting because we talk about, or we at least on the podcast have talked about money, prize money, and how that would change the sport. But I, I don't think we've talked a lot about maybe taking an infusion of money and putting it in a different direction. So rather than funding tournaments, maybe funding educational programs. And I think that historically for Ultimate, that's been something that's been successful for them. They, they had an infusion of money from Whammo back when Whammo was trying to, trying to become the next Ultimate disc after um, the Sky, or not the Sky Styler, what do they use? The Ultra Star. So after the Ultra Star was the disc, Whammo was trying to break in and they ended up giving the UPA a bunch of money so that the UPA would say, okay, your disc is officially recognized by us. And they took that money and went and did a bunch of uh, educational programs with schools. So they started doing demo clinics at schools and teaching uh, kids, junior high kids, how to play Ultimate. Teaching Basically teaching the PE coaches how to teach Ultimate as part of the curriculum. And I think that changed the public awareness of what Ultimate Frisbee was. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That... Uh... Every high school, every elementary school in Toronto has an ultimate team, you know, and then as a result, the Toronto Ultimate League has several hundred teams because these kids grow up 
playing ultimate and then they want to continue. Then we're back at that, you know, ultimate is so much easier to pick up. And is that if I'm a PE teacher and I'm like, okay, I can choose to teach ultimate or I can choose to teach freestyle. I'm like, okay, I think I'll be picking the ultimate one because that's something everybody will be able to do right away. So tough. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it has nothing to do with the PE teachers. Maybe it's bringing some pros in, you know, for a, a few week period, showing kids some stuff and, you know, maybe you get one kid <laughs> who gets turned on. Who knows, right? Yeah, I don't know if there's there's an easy answer to any of that, you know. I know. It's a tough sport. And to be honest with you, I know some people want it to grow. I, I'm quite happy with where it is. I love playing the sport. I love the niche aspect of the sport. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it'd be nice if more people played, but I, I don't know how realistic it is that that will ever happen. But, I mean, who knows, right? I mean, maybe in 50 years from now, it'll be everywhere, right? You know, it's funny doing this podcast has really sort of changed my whole viewpoint of that because now I used to just like, oh, how do we grow? We need to just get big prize money and really have it be a show. And kind of now on the other side, it's like, I don't know how much of that I really desire. You know, it's like I would like to see that, but I also with you, I'm happy where it's at. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Yeah. But so, so I did, but I did like what you said earlier, Patrick, about, about doing an educational program, having an infusion of money and doing an educational program. So maybe sidestepping that whole issue of how we address competition, make it more audience friendly and just say, let's just go do a, a, a project that's about raising awareness for freestyle frisbee. Maybe let's phrase it different. The, the terminology, let's not have tournaments, but let's have access points. So focused on the tournament part and competing that I think we may be missing. We're missing the opportunity to create more access points. And it yeah. could be just the lingo that we use. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, okay. you know, back in the day, we used to have the Hacky Sack Frisbee uh, festivals, right? Yep. And they, they were access points. The emphasis is more on turning people on and having them involved versus um, having a, a big competition. Well, that was a really interesting discussion with Patrick. And one of the things that really resonated with me was his idea and the concept of access points. And that I realized we don't really have very many access points for freestyle. We have lots of one-offs where, you know, you will see it at a tournament or, you know, you see a demo, but that's just kind of a one-time deal. And there isn't really many places for folks to go to an access point. There just aren't that many around. So, you know, how do we create more access points? That's a really good question. You know, I, I feel personally very fortunate um, that I had an access point as a new freestyler. So in Santa Rosa, there was a small jam community and they were very willing to take on new players and, and help us learn. You know, they were um, excellent at that. And I often wonder if I would have ever picked up freestyle Frisbee had that access point not existed. And so, I don't know, I feel very personal about the importance of access point. And it feels to me like, so we've got step one now, we have the demos, we have the tournaments, we're missing step two. Someone sees it, they want to learn it, where do they go to learn it? But it's such a hard problem to solve. And so, yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I think we should do, let's ask our audience, everyone out there listening, what do you guys think? How do we create sustainable access points to get people to step two so that they can learn the sport? I, I'm really curious what your thoughts are. If we had that infusion of cash, what would you do to create access points? And on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. 
to contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees and live streaming freestyle frisbee.